Good day and welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension, University of Minnesota podcast, University of Minnesota Cropcast. I'm your host, Dave Nicolai, along with my co-host, Dr. Seth Nave, Extension Soil Specialist here at the University of Minnesota. Our special guest today in the studio is Dr. Candy Hurst. Uh, Candy is a professor at the University of Minnesota Department of Agronomy in Corn Genetics. And I'm going to let Candy uh, introduce herself a little bit in terms of uh, where you came from, uh, where you went to school, and how in the world did you end up here at the University of Minnesota? All right. Well, it started in Roanoke, Virginia, at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, that's where I was born. And then we moved up to Wisconsin uh, when I was in elementary school. And I did not grow up on a farm, despite being in a small town. Um, but I did work at an organic berry farm for most of middle school and high school. And you know, really loved being with plants, but thought I was pre-med. Went to Madison, got a job in a corn genetics research group to make some money and never left corn again. And um, so I, I worked as a corn geneticist in my undergrad, corn breeding for my PhD at Wisconsin. And then I went to Michigan State to do a postdoc doing more bioinformatics and genomics work. And then I um, got my position here at the University of Minnesota. And so when did you come to the U? Minnesota. Yeah, uh, 2013. So 10 years I've been here. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. You, uh, you're certainly what I would consider one of the young faculty, but um, um, you and I were both promoted to full professor at the same time this uh, summer. So it's, it's very nice to have, uh, have you uh, join us here. Uh, it's, it's, it was, um, it's, it's been really a pleasure to have you here with us. I think it was a good a good find for us, and, and uh, certainly you're doing some tremendous research. So um, there's a lot of our listeners are, are highly applied folks, and so we're, gonna, we're probably going to dive into your research, but I'll probably prompt you for some definitions on some of these things, you know, translational genomics, what, what's, what are you transforming, translating, uh, what are you transforming, what, uh, what is bioinformatics and, and those types of things as we go on. I think it's a, it'll be a good experience for a lot of our listeners. Um, you know, uh, we have a lot of folks on that are ag professionals and farmers themselves and, and uh, understand uh, the need for um, uh, research at, at universities to move us, move us ahead, especially in in corn and soybean here in the upper Midwest. So I think they're going to appreciate hearing a little bit about some of the work that you do. And I think it's going to be new for a lot of folks. So tell us, tell us what you do. What is, what exactly uh, it is that you do in your lab and what do you do in the field? You, you mentioned you just came from the field, you're harvesting corn. So we, we, we here know that you are a field person too. You're not just in the lab and on the computer. So give us Give us a day in the life of uh, Candy Hirsch and tell us a little bit about some of your projects. <laughs> day in the life, that's a good one. Um, so we are, the big goal of our research program is to try to improve corn as a crop plant. And we think about that in a lot of different ways, um, from increasing yields to improving composition to improving um, stability as we face climate change. So there's a lot of different aspects of improving corn for for production. And we tackle this typically using what we call big data. So we collect as much data as we can, and then we try to make models and do different things with that data to find that piece of information that's going to allow us to actually 
find the genes or the mechanisms or those sorts of things that are going to improve corn. So big data. So what what is the data? We know it's big, so we know there's a lot of it. So just in, inherent within the uh, within the title, but uh, or the name. But what is what is what are the, what are those data points that you're associating with each other? Yeah. So we start with collecting weather data. So every 15 minutes, we're collecting the soil temperature, soil moisture, air temperature, wind speed, um, all you know, everything that you can kind of think of every 15 minutes, so that we can really document what is the condition that the plants are growing in. And then we are phenotyping them. So we fly drones over a lot of our experiments. We do this every couple days so that we can track how much the plants are growing. And so the way we do this is um, when we fly, we can take pictures from multiple different angles. And then how our eyes see in three dimensions, we can reconstruct a field in three dimensions. And we can know how tall every plant in the entire field is. And we can track that through the whole growing season so we can see how different plants respond when we get more rain or when we don't get enough rain like this last summer um, and we can see how they're responding to different weather events. And then we look at the genotype of the individual. So the actual sequence of the DNA, we do a lot of sequencing of genomes, of the transcriptomes and the genome becomes RNA. And we use all of that to try to understand how both the blueprint of the individual that's encoded in its DNA and the environment that it's put into results in the end of the season plant that we harvest and and do stuff with. It's it's so cool because what you do is exactly the same thing that farmers are dealing with on a on a and talk to me about. They're like, how do I how do I choose a variety for my farm because I have these kinds of special characteristics or you know these kind of needs in terms of of, um, you know, what kind of returns I need in terms of yields and, and things like that. And so it's, it's kind of interesting that you have this complete reductionist uh, view of this thing down all the way down to um, individual genes within, within these corn plants and how they relate to the environment. So very cool stuff. So how, um, how will this, some of this information, how, how does this inform the community and, and how does this get out and how, what's, what are the next steps in terms of, of uh, ultimately getting those, that improvement into the field that you mentioned earlier for the farmers themselves? Yeah, I'll talk about one project that we're working with PepsiCo on because I think there's, it's so close to, to the growers. Um, so PepsiCo owns Frito-Lay, makes corn chips, tortillas, these sorts of things. Those are all masa-based products. And so they, companies like PepsiCo need specific varieties that will go through the cooking process and make good dough. And that means that they need to be hard. They need to have a thicker pericarp. There's a lot of attributes that go into not having a runny dough or a dry dough at the end. And so we are working with PepsiCo to understand what makes a variety actually go through cooking well. How does the starch and the proteins change throughout cooking, things like that. And the reason this is really important is because a lot of companies put relatively little R&D, seed companies that is, into developing food grade hybrids because it's relatively low acreage. Um, But it has really important um, implications for human consumption. People eat a lot of corn-based chip products. Um, and so while that 
there's some breeding happening, it leaves a lot of the important the ownership on the food companies to screen these varieties. And then they say, grower X, if you grow this variety in this area, we will buy it at our elevator and will you you know and pay you the premium for that particular variety. Um, and so we are helping them to be able to screen different varieties more efficiently to find the best food grade hybrids that are going to yield well and have all the properties they need to actually be able to make chips so that when they contract to growers to grow those particular varieties, they, they know that they're going to work well for them. It's, it's amazing. The, you know, we, in, in ag, we talk a lot about, um, food and food ingredients and, and, you know, the cost, you know, the amount of, of dollars that Frito-Lay spends on uh, advertising and packaging and distribution and manufacturing uh, relative to the cost of the, the grain that goes in, in, in the bag. And it's, it's amazing to me that, you know, that we're just getting around to really fine tuning this, but from a, from a profit standpoint, I understand we have the same type of things in soybean is that the manufacturers, they're engineers, they can get around a lot of problems themselves. And so they haven't, they haven't worried too much about the, um, going all the way back to the feedstock or the product that goes into these, but it's really, it's really cool that you're able to help, help them move along. And, and certainly they're going to have a more stable product, um, going forward. Yeah. One of the big challenges that they face is they have a limited number of people who actually can modify the cook. So if the grain comes in and it doesn't fit their standard and that person retires or is sick that day, they don't have people who are like able to constantly change it. And so one of the things that we've developed is a model that will actually scan the grain and tell you from NI, from from light that reflects off of it how what it's going to be after cooking. So they can immediately change the cooking and say this batch is one that gets absorbs more water, we need to cook it for less time. And that makes it a lot more automated for them so they're not relying on a single human to make those decisions along the cooking process. I mean, and that has to have huge uh, returns for them. So I can, I can see why that's really an, an important, important product, project um, for you. So Dave was mentioning he talked to a farmer that was, um, this is kind of associated with it. It's a kind of a quality question, but Dave mentioned that he talked to a farmer that had uh, had a bag that he needed to re- return some seed for you. I think more, right? more than one. Why don't you back up a little bit, Candy, and talk about the sampling it's a little, it's a segue in here, but um, somewhat similar. But in this case, we're not talking about s- situations where involving, you know, a food grade hybrid here. We're talking about what I would call grain, co- you know, in terms of typical uh, hybrids we have across the landscape. So you're involved with that. How did you get involved with this and, and, uh, and why are you doing it? Yeah, so we'll take a step back about why the study is important and then talk about all these grains bags that we've been shipping right, out to right. everybody around the yeah. state. <laughs> so, so what do we call this project? Um, grain Durability Study. So this is funded by the Minnesota Corn Growers Association and the National Corn Growers Association looking at grain durability. And this really came out of a number of reports um, over the last decade that have shown declining durability of U.S. corn grain. Um, so as corn is sitting with a lot of pressure on it, it's sh- being shipped by boat, by rail, et cetera, there's a lot of opportunity for the grain to get damaged. And when it gets to the final market that it's going to, if it's all damaged, it gets a lower grade, it 
doesn't get as much money and and that hurts everybody upstream of that. Um, other places like Brazil has really high grain quality, very little damage when it gets to ed markets. And so the question was, why has durability decreased so much for U.S. grain? And we know that starch has increased and protein has decreased as breeders have pushed yields because starch is cheaper for the plant to make than protein. But what other things have changed and how has the environment that the plants are growing in changed? How has the shape of the kernels, the, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of factors that could contribute to this beyond just that change in the starch protein ratio. So we are addressing this in a number of different ways. One is called an era study. So we've taken hybrids that were grown over the, since the 50s and 60s every decade. And we're looking at how are they growing and responding to the environment um, and things like that. And what has changed about the plants? Is it, you know, is this really the density that we grow plants at now? Or, you know, like, and so even varieties from the 70s don't do well because they're in a different environment. Um, so that's one way we're looking at it. Another way is by doing a big experiment across the state. We have people growing corn all over the whole state, and a lot of them grow similar, the same varieties. And so we can, if everybody sends us grain samples, we have this huge multi-environment study that is being done on the landscape in production settings. And we can take that grain and we can say, how durable is it? And so we do this in a couple different ways. One is we put in a paint shaker and we shake it up and we look at how much damage it has. We put pressure on it and we see if it cracks and things like that. And so we get a metric of how damaged is it? And then we measure all kinds of things about the grain from the size of it, the shape of it, the chemical properties of it, the properties of the pericarp that's around the outside of the kernel. You name it, we measure it. And then we're going to throw all of that into a big model. And we're going to let the model tell us, along with the weather of where that grain came from, the soil in the location, it's like everything that we can throw in the model. And we're going to say, model, tell us what's important. And so that's why we've been asking everybody to send us grain samples. And so we've been shipping out hundreds of bags to growers all over the state. And we're excited to have some of those starting to come in now so that we can do all those measurements and see what makes grain actually durable. Well, in addition to the, to the uh, location, obviously, and, and the weather, but you're, the commonality here is you're looking at specifically maybe the same hybrid or the same number across the landscape. Is that part of of the analysis? Yep. So that's why we wanted to get so many samples because we're at, you know, along with the grower sending in the seed, they're sent, filling out a form that tells us what hybrid they grew, what day they planted it, what day they harvested it, how they managed it, so that we we will have some varieties that have been grown in multiple different locations with the same variety so that we can see if it's more about the soil, the environment, those sorts of things, or is it that the genetics is is the major driver of this. And so we'll be able to tease that apart by having so many samples because presumably when we get hundreds of samples back, some of them are going to be the same variety. Any preliminary indications how things are looking? A lot of variability out well, there? Too soon to tell. everybody's harvesting right now. Yeah. So the bags are just starting to come back to us. Just like, you know, we're, I was out harvesting this morning. I'm sure most of your listeners are out harvesting or, you know, so we don't know yet. Do you, um, I assume you're asking for these right out of the combine, so these are wet 
corn samples before they dry on the farm? Yep. So they're sending them to us wet. We're going to put them through forced air drying here just so that they don't um, go bad, but it'll be similar conditions to what they would be dried on farm. That'd be interesting. I mean, this year is a interesting year in that we've got a lot of dry corn coming from the field. It's very unusual um, to have so much corn um, that that's coming out of the field and going right into storage directly. Some of it's at 19% uh, that I've seen. It's pretty common, you know, right out of the combine. So Yep, I've had, so a couple of the the people who are contributing to this already said it's harvested, it's less than 20% moisture, Mm -hmm. we're sending it straight away. It's like, that's that's unheard of in early to mid-October to have grain at 18% moisture. (laughs) So I I wanted to jump back to some of your earlier comments and your preliminary we talked about earlier about the research with looking at, from a genetic standpoint, drone and so forth, things that you might be doing on campus and so forth. Are you using a common modern hybrid out there or anything specific? And some of this could be studies and graduate students, but I mean, obviously there's going to be a lot of difference between, you know, dealing with an inbred out here versus, you know, some of the modern ones. Are you, are you staying with that over time? So it depends on the experiment and the question. So when we're talking about food grade corn and you know, this experiment that I just described, these are all commercial hybrids. But sometimes we are trying to find the genetics that underlies a gene or a trait of interest. And so if we're trying to find that, we want to have as much variation as possible. And breeders have done a really good job of getting rid of variation. So if we only focused on commercial hybrids, we wouldn't have a lot of variation. And so when we do our more genetics-based studies, we do those in what we call diversity panels. So these are varieties or different inbreds that um, some of them are used solely for genetic studies or they were inbreds that contributed to various hybrids, but they are really diverse in, in their traits. And that allows us to get that range that we need to actually be able to do genetic studies. Well, that certainly is, you know, one of the things that is unique to the University of Minnesota and to land-grant universities is that ability to do that because a lot of folks that are in plant breeders and in an industry situation are going to be more focused on the end product rather than on some of the genetics. So uh, we certainly have what I would call, I don't want to call it a niche, but a, a need to do that where probably you won't find that in a private industry situation so much. Yeah, I mean, they they want the winners, right? right. Of course, they they want to give growers the winners. And and we also care about the losers, the bad environments, the bad genotypes, because we can learn as much from something that doesn't do well as we can from something that does do well. And we don't have that constant pressure to get out the best variety today that that they do. Yeah, I mean, I guess that opens me up to one of my pet topics here is about, you know, public versus private research investment and, and things like that. So uh, how, um, you know, how, how do you reply to folks that say, well, you know, as a farmer, I'm spending all this money on this seed corn and so Bayer or, or, you know, Corteva, you know, they've, they have all the resources to do all this work to advance these, uh, the genetics for me on my farm. So what's the role of the, of the public sector in all this? And, and, you know, uh, feel free to, to self-promote uh, the academic side of this, if uh, all, all that you like, because 
I think most of the folks listening probably have some sympathy for us anyway. So this is also a pet topic of mine that I like to talk about a lot and why what we do here is so important. So yes, Corteva and Bayer, Syngenta, et cetera, they are releasing varieties. But who is actually going out and doing those experiments and developing the genomic prediction models and doing all that? Those are highly trained people who got their PhDs or masters or bachelors or whatever de- you know degree they have from a a public institution. And so we hold a really important role here in training. And I think that's one of, there's a couple things I'll say, but I think that the training aspect of what we do here is so important and so unique, and we can do it in a way that um, that students learn how to ask questions rather than how to throw away an experiment that didn't give you the answer right away, right? We need to train people how to think and to ask questions and be critical and do all of those things. And that's a really important role that we play here so that when they go, students leave our institution and go into the private industry, they are primed and ready to actually design the best experiments to find the best hybrids to give to growers to, to put on their farms. So training is a huge thing. Um, we also put a lot of information out into the public domain through publications and talks, um, extension talks, talks at conferences, et cetera, that all actually gets used by companies. The first genome assembly in corn was done in the public sector. It was it was lobbied for by national corn growers primarily, um, and it was done in the in the public sector. And then that was used by companies. You know, I mean, that was millions and millions of dollars of public funding that went into that, that facilitated so much for public and private sector researchers. And so I think that the aspect of training and putting information into the public are two really important things we do here. The other thing is that we are impartial. We are not here to make a profit off of our research. And so we can be an impartial body that actually speaks to what we know to be true right now, what traits are actually, you know, useful to growers, what, um, you know, suggestions of how to manage their land, um, rotations, things, you know, things that, that are all research that's happening at the university, that when we, when that is disseminated is not with a bias. And I think that's another really important aspect of what we do here is that really unbiased, um, non-commercial driven research. And part of that commercial driven piece is just the time period too, is we can take a a bit of a longer term, or you can take a bit of a longer term view uh, at this than than those companies that have shareholders that that need um, their own um, support for those stock prices on a on a quarterly basis. So I think that's that's really important, especially when we're thinking about these longer issues that you mentioned earlier, like changing environments and things like that. You're looking for hybrids um, that are going to do well and. 10 and 20 and 30 years in some cases. And, and the, the companies are really interested in something that's going to do well for farmers next year. So I think that's, that's another really important part that was in part of your answer, but wanted to highlight. You know, um, training, teaching. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you, you do some teaching. You can talk a little bit about that. And, you know, what are today's students like when they come into the classroom? What do you, what do you see? You've been here now uh, at, uh, 10 years, a little bit about, about teaching. 
Yeah, so I teach a plant genomics course. So the the course is really hands-on. We actually work with sequencing data. So throughout the semester, they're working with terabytes of data, and they're learning how to actually process that into useful information. I would say one thing I've noticed a huge change is how um, program-savvy students are from 10 years ago to today. They're, they're learning how to do coding in middle school, in elementary school, you know, they're starting, I have a seven-year-old who's starting to do coding work, you know, it just says like what they do. And so they, you know, that aspect of having to teach coding is, is not as much of a concern anymore. And now we can really like talk about how to use that programming to do something with the data. Um, so that's a huge shift that I've seen in students um, over the last decade. But, you know, I our students really want to make a difference, and I think that is so inspiring. Um, it can it can get tiring doing this job day in and day out, but having fresh minds coming in all the time that really want to make a difference is kind of what keeps this you know possible <laughs> to do this every day. Um, and I have phenomenal graduate students that I get to work with in my research group. Um, they're all exceptional. Yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about your group. What does your project look like? Especially start with start with the students. So I have right now six graduate students that are working with me that are from uh, first year to fourth year students. Um, they are really taking on a lot of the you know the day to day aspects of their research and driving the next questions of it. Um, when a student comes in, I really like them to have a project they can start and dive into and it's ready for them. And then they grow into being able to think and critically look at what's known and develop a project. And so that's kind of as they move through different years of their graduate education, they go from doing to, you know, now here's like, think of the question and then what is the future of, of the research? So, um, yeah. I have students that are working on food grade corn, um, durability, um, response to the environment, more of a G by E aspect, genomic prediction. Um, so kind of all over the place, um, but and, all within corn. And where you mentioned, you know, the need to um, educate um, students for industry positions. Um, do you, where do you think the positions are, are going to be open for students that come out of your lab? Do you think most of them will go into the private sector or will you have some um, academics within the, the group? And I know you, we always ask students at the very end and they still don't necessarily know in, until the very end, but what's your feeling or based on a larger population, where do you, where do you see your students go? Yeah. I mean, I can relate to them on that. When I was a graduate student, I think every other month if somebody asked me, the answer was different of what I wanted to do. And I th I think that's a good thing, keeping the options open. And that's where a lot of students are at. Um, most of my students go into private industry um, in data science roles. Um, so I have students that have matriculated and are at Bayer, Syngenta, Corteva, um, the major seed companies, but also at um, students and postdocs that have gone into human medical genomics because, you know, it's not really that different what we do when DNA is DNA and a lot of the statistics that we do, you can do on 
you know, in different systems. And so students that I train have gone into human medical genomics as well as plant genomics and bioinformatics. Um, we have a postdoc that just um, started in a USDA position in the department. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Um, so it's some industry, some academic um, support roles within the university at the Supercomputing Institute. So what's the next thing? Where, where are things going? Uh, what is... Uh... What does Candy Hirsch want to get involved with here in the next uh, next couple of years? <laughs> As a full professor, now you can do right. whatever you want. I can do want. anything, right, right, right. yeah. Um, that is a good question. Probably something that should have been in my promotion package. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I am really interested in looking at plants' responsiveness to the environment and how that um, can be used to predict yield. So we do this in plots already. And um, we're kind of transitioning right now into doing this more in production settings and trying to think about how we can use big data to predict the performance of a particular portion of the field. And then that can be used to make decisions about management or what hybrids you might put in different parts of the field based on historical knowledge of how, how parts of the field respond. So that's something that we're working on right now that I think is really exciting and up in the future. The other thing that we're really excited about, and this is something I haven't talked at all about so far today, but um, we do a lot of work with what we call the pan genome. So in any species, humans, corn, soybean, there are genes that are present in all individuals. And then there's genes that only some people have, like Seth has different, some set of genes that I don't have. And those genes that are present in only sub some individuals have importance for adaptation to different environmental conditions um, and can be really important as we're thinking about how we're going to have continue to grow plants that respond in our, our future climates. And so we have done a lot of work to understand this pan-genome variation in corn. And as we're moving forward, we're trying to understand what traits that's important for what genes that are dispensable may be something that we want to incorporate into the future and how that can be used to improve genomic prediction and breeding tools like that. So that's a big area of research in our group that will continue to grow as the technology now actually supports us to assemble hundreds of individuals, whereas before it was millions and millions of dollars to do one. Now it's $10,000 $5,000 to do an individual. And so we can really change completely how we think about genomics in species. Is, is part of this understanding um, the genes that we've lost uh, through breeding and through bottlenecking and some of these things as well? Is that part of, part of what you're looking at? Yep. So there's genes that are in ancestral species or, you know, wild species, um, that could, that's part of where we lose it. But there's also a lot of different ways that genes can be made. So we can have, um, if there's one copy, the DNA, when it's replicating, can make a mistake and make a second copy. And when you have two copies there, sometimes you get different properties by having two copies of the gene. So there's some ways that happen from gene loss, and there's others that happen from actually a gain of a gene. And so we actually we do a lot of work also to understand how the mechanism that created these genes that not everybody has is important in determining their outcomes. Fantastic. Well, I um 
I can't let you go without mentioning that you're a, a new award winner. I, uh, this is a surprise to you. I didn't mention that I was going to mention this, but um, Candy is uh, got two very prestigious awards at the university um, this summer. Um, so one is she received the University of Minnesota McKnight Presidential Professorship in Plant Genome- Genomics, and uh, she also received the 2023 Award for Excellence in Academic Unit Service. So can you please tell us a little bit about those? Um, otherwise, I would have to read this paragraph that, that explains them to us, and I don't think anybody wants me to, uh, me to read them uh, out loud. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the McKnight Professorship and what that means, and um, as well as this new award that uh, you were awarded this year. Yeah, th- so the McKnight um, is made possible by a really generous donation to the university from the McKnight Foundation that supports, there's many different McKnight Awards that support faculty throughout their career um, that are tailored for those that are new assistant professors, associate professors, full professors. So this award, um, you know, it's it's a huge honor to have received it and in, in the recognition of the work that we do um, in our group, and it's really not, I facilitate people doing a lot of great research, but they're, you know, it's all these students that are in the group and postdocs that are, are doing the research, and so it's kind of a recognition of a, of a big group effort to, to do the research that we do. But this is a title that you're going to hold for the rest of your tenure at the University of Minnesota, is that right? That, that is correct. This particular one is, a, is for the rest of my time here. That's that's uh, it's quite an honor. So we we really appreciate that. And then the other um, the award for excellence in academic unit service. So, do you know anything about this? Do you know enough to tell us about this award as well? So this is a new award that was just started at the university level, um, and we we all do a lot of service. And service is something that is not recognized, but extraordinarily important. And this is. So, for example, I currently serve as the director of graduate studies for one of the graduate programs here. So that is, you know, making sure that students have an advocate for them, that the program is running smoothly, that we are thinking about how we're training the next generation at a, you know, more programmatic level and all that kind of stuff to more national service. Um, I was on the board of directors for the Mays Genetics Cooperation over the last couple of years, and that is um, you know, everybody doing maize genetics research is part of this that is in the public and, and often um, folks in the private sector as well. Um, so organizing this nonprofit that is advocating for public funding for research and these sorts of things. So um, service comes in many flavors for academics, and it's super important. And um often undervalued or under-recognized. And so getting this award was, um, was really fantastic to, for, you know, to have that be seen. You know, I would, I would support that because I've seen a couple of faculty meetings and, and endorse Candy because I've noticed uh, in participation, uh, you know, in the room you can kind of tell on students that she sits up front, participates, and she answers the questions that the department head ha- asks or thinks he's going to ask. And Seth, I think you're someplace in the room, but you know, maybe towards the back. <laughs> that's that's probably right. You know, it's it. We do uh, these public institutions really require a lot of um, volunteering. I mean, this is really what service is: is is that somebody's willing to raise their hand and come forward and and accept 
additional responsibilities beyond you know the 40,000 things that faculty already do. And so um, it's just become increasingly important um, and it, it's more and more of a challenge to get folks to do the work that, that Candy's been doing. And, and she's really served on some really um, important um, uh, committees and, and performed a lot of really important roles for both the department and the college and the university. So we really, really, really appreciate all of her efforts uh, for us and, and helping uh, make uh, the university a better place and helping us turn out better students. So any last comments, Candy, that you had? We kind of alluded to those earlier about like, what, what you wanted to do in the future, but anything, Hailer, to, to close out? Um, no, I mean, I, I really appreciate the support that we've gotten. Um, I always like to thank Minnesota Corn Growers. They've been consistent support and advocating for our research. And so I just really appreciate them and, and all of the, the support that we get at the national level as well. Well, thank you for uh, stopping in today at the uh, University of Minnesota podcast, Minnesota CropCast. Again, our guest has been uh, Dr. Candy Hirsch, who is the University of Minnesota Department of Agronomy uh, in the area of corn genetics. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Dave Nikolai, with the University of Minnesota uh, Educator in Crops and Extension, along with my co-host, Dr. Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Specialist here at uh, University of Minnesota. So again, thank you folks for listening and I hope you can drop into our another episode of University of Minnesota podcast, Minnesota CropCast.